Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and this is the last episode of 2016. It's hard to believe that that much time has flown, but here we are in December, and I hope you take the holiday season to catch up on any episodes that you've missed while you wait with what I am sure is bated breath for our next episode in January of 2017. This week, we are talking to the author of my favorite novel of this year, Madeline Tien, whose book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won all kinds of prestigious Canadian awards. You can hold many contradictory truths at once, and that is not something that you're allowed to express when we live in totalitarian times. And we'll catch up with a beloved former blogger from our website, Jessica Love, whose perception of childhood development changed completely once she welcomed her own child into the family. Picture a wind-up toy teetering along on a tabletop, and you wind it up, and it's just kind of good to go as long as you don't let it teeter off the shelf. And we'll hear a little bit about how Neville Mariner, the conductor behind the most ubiquitous orchestra on the radio, was actually a rebel. When he subsequently became a professional and realized that this huge portion of music was not being performed by symphony orchestras, it struck a chord. I figured you needed a break from all the Christmas tunes on the radio, so this episode features a lot of beautiful classical music and a bonus playlist that you'll hear about after we talk to Madeline Tien. Her novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, is a sweeping epic that follows two families through China's recent history, from the first days of Chairman Mao's rise to the bloody Cultural Revolution and the Tiananmen Square demonstrations of 1989. It's a story about family, but it's also about revolutionary idealism and, above all, the music that shapes the three musicians at the heart of the novel. She's joining us from the Banff Center in Alberta, Canada, where she's been teaching in the Emerging Writers Program. Thanks for joining me, Madeline. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So since you've spent all week talking about the writing process, no doubt, I thought we would uh, dive right into it and talk about your writing process. Mm -hmm. What was your research process like for the book? Any difficulties in researching the violence of the Cultural Revolution or Tiananmen Square? Um, I, I feel like 
like I had been absorbing a lot of information for a long time, probably since the time I was a teenager. My my background is Malaysian Chinese, but both my parents are born outside of China, and they speak different dialects and not Mandarin, which is the the language of mainland China. Um, so I, when I really started. Um, intensively immersing myself in Chinese history was probably about five or six years ago, and I started with Tiananmen, and the six weeks of demonstrations that brought up to a million people into the square for days at a time, and what I ended up thinking about was Tiananmen as an ongoing moment of unfinished history. So the unfinished history. Going back to the Cultural Revolution, and of course further back to 1949, and the founding of the nation, and the aspirations of what modern China would look like, how it would function, what kind, what what equality and social justice would look like, what communism would look like. So, it, um, in terms of the research, it was so expansive in a sense because I was thinking a lot about how nation states come into being, and about the recurrences in history of revolutionary idealism, and how often it feeds into a kind of catastrophic violence. Did you speak to anyone who had lived through that violence, either in exile or in China? Always, partly because if someone has lived, if someone is、uh, my age or older, they, everyone has lived through it. Um, so, in a sense, you're always talking to people, and you're always talking around things. Because in China,、um, in in official history, you know,、uh, certain things are very sensitive. The Cultural Revolution is sensitive, yes, but it can be talked about for sure. And 1989 is extremely sensitive, and it's not a topic that's likely to come up except in very private conversations where there's a lot of trust. Which is not to say that it is not something that is remembered. It is remembered in many ways in China. Remembered by the government each year that they have to、um, censor conversations around it, and remembered, of course, in in individual lives. Something you said earlier about unfinished history reminds me of this beautiful story that's woven throughout the novel called the Book of Records, which is discovered by a character named Wen the Dreamer. And his family then passes it along from mid-century China to Canada in 1991. Can you talk about that a little bit? The what it was and how you put it in the novel and sort of how it fits with your idea of history. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It just kind of came to life by itself. It is、um, basically in concrete form. It's a set of notebooks, and each chapter of a novel handwritten into a different notebook, and、um, it seems to have no beginning and no end. And no known author, and it comes into the lives of the characters, and they are swept up in it because the novel seems like、uh, a sort of refracted mirror of the times that they live in, and it, they fall into its seduction of storytelling at the same time that they recognize what's happening in their own political moment in the book. And then, as time goes on, the novel is passed from hand to hand, and it's used by members of the family to hide information and to encode locations, and in, in, eventually to hide the names of people、um, as a kind of unofficial record of history and an unofficial memory. And in a way, it's about using art and literature and story to hide a truth that can't be spoken in a given moment. What's interesting too about the Book of Records is that I loved how、um, 
when the dreamer, who originally discovers it, finds a fragment, finds one notebook, and then searches all over China for the rest of them. And then <laughs> decades later, when he can't find any more, he's like, well, screw it. I'm just going to write more of it. Yes. Um, how does that fit into, into history, making up your own story? Um, I think it's a meditation on the messiness of the historical narrative and all the bits and pieces and fragments um, the personal and the public that go into the book of records and so this book of records is more than a historical text it's about lives lived and lives forgotten and it's also about the imagination and how we imagine ourselves and the societies even our own society that used to be and seems now seems not to exist any longer uh, so it's a, it's almost like saying that history, art, literature, music, song, they're all part of this ongoing book of records. This novel and your last novel, Dogs at the Perimeter, seem to wrestle with some of the same questions of memory and history and political violence. So I was wondering what role you thought that literature and, and art at large plays with regard to totalitarian regimes or governments that might seem to be tipping towards totalitarian regimes? I, I like to think of them as these wide expanses where we can really think. And it's not the same as an essay form or a political tract or a manifesto or any of those things. It's a wide open space where multiple ways of thinking come into collision and where meaning is made from the contact of all these different truths. So in some ways, what I've been thinking about is the polyphonic novel, the multi-voiced novel, and also um, that because it's in the realm of the imagination and creation, as well as memory and history, it's it's a kind of private space because when we come to literature, we really come to it alone as a reader and we come into contact with what the writer has made and in this private space which is a kind of kind of listening space as well as a thinking space you can hold many contradictory truths at once and that is not something that you're allowed to express when we live in totalitarian times in totalitarian times there is only one truth one way of speaking one way of believing in the just society one form of purity and the act of literature and the act of reading and, and listening is very much against that kind of purity. It's, it's a much more broken way of thinking that's wound into a astonishingly cohesive fabric, which is the art, the art of it. Mm. In that way, art becomes a kind of rebellion. I think that's true, but I also think that art can be deployed in many ways. Art can be used in many ways. So it, it's definitely true that during the Cultural Revolution there was art. There was propaganda art. There was the Central Philharmonic that was still playing in Beijing under the leadership of Mao Zedong's wife, Jiang Qing. And, and there were the new ballets, the model operas. So it was the idea that only new forms of art could carry the new revolutionary qualities and the new human that's the language that the revolution uses. And of course, underneath all that are the old things we would still recognize, um, power, hierarchy, violence, and the use of revolutionary idealism to entrench a particular kind of power system. 
What kind of role do you see this novel playing, I guess, in the future of history? Has it, is it going to be published in mm-hmm. China? Do you know whether that's a possibility? Mm-hmm. I think it's a novel that is very much open to its unfinishedness, and it kind of ends with another door that is that we still haven't walked through yet. And I think that is very much in keeping with a, a truthfulness to what is happening in China now, and in fact, in many of our countries. Um, and I think it will be published in China one day. I, I had a Chinese publisher tell me, I hope that one day when we are a more normal country, we'll be able to publish your book. And that the word normal just struck. It was a, such an unexpected word, but it was such a saddening one because there were so many things that we take for granted about what about what's available to us and that he knew that couldn't be made available at this moment. It won't be published now. It's too sensitive, especially the 1989 Tiananmen part. But I have faith that, that it will be published maybe even sooner than we realize. I want to talk a little bit more about the music, which runs through the the history of these two families and seems to be really at the heart of the novel. You talked about the polyphonic novel, and in many ways, yours is, it seems to be the epitome because we have all of these voices from the families, but we also have musical notation that sneaks its way into the text. There's photographs, there's mentions and references to all kinds of artists who were uh, old Chinese artists or old Western artists. And I'm no classical music aficionado, but I certainly believe that all of these violinists and composers and singers and pianists knew what they were talking about. <laughs> but surely you don't play the piano and sing and violin and compose. So <laughs> what was, was your upbringing musical at all? And, and if it was, how did you approach writing about it? It's a great question. Um, uh, someone asked me this question. They said, what do you play? I said, I don't play anything. And, 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 and they said, oh, you play the radio, <laughs> um, which is about as, as, as pretty true. I, I play the piano poorly and the guitar poorly. I learned for a year when I was a kid. And my exposure to classical music is through ballet. I, I, I trained as a ballet dancer for 12 years. So I had a deep relationship with music, but I didn't know about music sort of in its own right. I knew what it felt like to me. I knew a kind of phrasing and the gesturing and the tonalities of it, but, but very much through dance, not through playing an instrument. The most joyful part of researching this book was was not about reading books, it was about listening. So I would go for these long walks where I could just listen to certain symphonies multiple times. I read a lot about music, I read about the lives of composers, but I think most importantly I listened, and I listened a lot, and I listened deeply, and I kept trying to hear new kinds of things, and I kept trying to think about what this music meant to my musician characters in the book, what it what it allowed them to express that wasn't available to them through any other language. Did you have any musician friends who you frantically sent those passages asking, like, is this really what a violinist thinks? Well, I, I, I do have very close musician friends and, who play in a quartet, and um, I meant to send them the pages all along. <laughs> And I was always nervous. And as it, as it happens, they only read the finished book. Um, but the, among the moving responses to the book has been each time a musician comes up to me, and it is that kind of wonder of how did you know? You know, how did you know that's what it felt like? How did you? And, and, and I know that feeling from reading books that have touched on parts of my life that feel very personal. I always wonder how did they know 
these things. But I think as the as the novelist, you, your faith is in this idea that, in fact, we do know many, many things. We just don't. We don't listen for them. There's so many beautiful, evocative Chinese pieces that are referenced. They just have such better names than like Sonata in G major. How, had you discovered those pieces before? Um, no, it, it came in the process of writing the book. It was, it was, it's amazing, you know, how much it's. It is true in research that one door opens another and another, and and same with music. One piece of music leads you to another and another, and you think about the the composers that I that have a, a strong presence in the book: Prokofiev, Shostakovich, Bach. You think about what they listened to and what doorways a musician might have passed through as they, as one part of them was opened by a particular piece of music. And I was listening to the composers who were writing in, in China in the 1930s and 1940s to see how they were trying to use the form and structure of Western classical music to express a Chinese identity and Chinese modernity and a music that actually would be for the people and as time changed, music that could speak to a revolutionary age, and then the music that's also silenced. Did you think about, at any point, writing the novel as following like the waves and movements of a symphony, for example, or another musical piece? Very much, very, very much. And in this case, um, the structure is Bach's Goldberg Variations. I'd been listening to that piece of music over and over as I wrote the book. It's the, the Goldberg Variations performed by Glenn Gould. He made two recordings, one in 1955 and one in 1981, and they're very different. And um, it starts with a very simple theme, an aria, and then it goes through 30 variations and canons where it reworks that very, very simple motif in very complex, structured, but um, expansive ways, taking you through all these human emotions and emotions that we don't have language to describe. And at the end brings you back to the very same aria that we heard at the beginning, but we hear it in, 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 a, in a very different way because we've been transformed by the, the movement. And I wanted to write a novel that would play with that idea of the recurrences of history, the recurrences of story, growing increasingly complex, but returning us back to the beginning. I love that piece of music. I'd never heard it before reading your book. And if there's one thing I can thank you for, it's introducing me to the Goldberg Variations. Oh, you're so welcome. Oh, that makes me very, very happy.
If I had my way, we would spend the next 40 minutes listening to the rest of that piece and I would just be quiet. That's the 1981 recording of the Goldberg Variations, where you can even hear Glenn Gould humming to himself as he's playing, which is just adorable. It's one of the dozens of pieces of music on our Spotify playlist, which you can find linked on our website, theamericanscholar.org slash podcast on this episode's page. And I attempted to include every piece of music mentioned in Madeline Tian's book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. I mean, I tried. There's a lot there, so I probably missed something. If you've read the book and you notice a piece that's not in there, please email me and I'll add it. It's podcast at theamericanscholar.org. And if you haven't read it yet, I can think of no better soundtrack to the novel than the music mentioned in it. And we're actually about to talk to the person who helped me assemble that playlist, who has way more classical music know-how than I do. Sudip Bose, the scholar's managing editor, wrote a lovely piece for our winter issue, an ode to the founder of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, the conductor Neville Mariner. The Academy of St. Martin in the Fields is the quintessential classical ensemble. If you've ever listened to the radio, even casually, you have definitely heard their recordings before. There are, after all, more than 500 of them. But what you might not know is that when the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields was formed, playing Baroque music was really not cool at all. So this is the story of how they and their conductor, Neville Mariner, made it cool. Thanks for joining me in the studio today. It's my pleasure to be here. I thought you could start by telling the origin story of the Academy because it's not really an Academy. <laughs> it's not an Academy. It's a wonderful chamber orchestra that uh, began essentially in Neville Mariner's living room in his flat in Kensington. And it is a remarkable story. He was a very successful, prominent violinist in the London Symphony Orchestra. But he and a lot of his colleagues at the time were a little bit frustrated by the opportunities of playing in an orchestra. They had strong opinions and personalities. And they also, especially Mariner, had this great interest in Baroque music, in music of the early classical period, in Renaissance music. And he thought what a wonderful idea it would be if he and a few colleagues from the orchestra would get together in his living room and play chamber music together. And it was a very small group of people. And this started in the, in the 1950s, but then very soon they were giving public concerts in London in the church called St. Martin in the Fields on Trafalgar Square, which gives the orchestra its name. They were quickly given a recording contract, and the rest is history, as I say. I love the part about how um, originally they were going to be the chamber orchestra, and then the vicar was like, no, you're going to be the academy. <laughs> it was a, a wonderful deal. The vicar said... We'll let you rehearse here at the church for free. We won't charge you anything, but you have to promote the church. So what was Mariner's contribution to the revival of Baroque music? If it wasn't cool to play Baroque music at the time. This was music that was not heard at all uh, on the concert stage. This was music that uh, was in large part forgotten, which seems a bit strange in 2016 when the music is so ubiquitous, especially on the radio. Mariner loved this music. He discovered it. He fell in love with it. And he felt that the performances of this repertoire at the time were not really in keeping with what he thought were the sort of ideal, historically correct, authentic modes of interpretation. And what I mean is that all music at that time was treated in a kind of 
big-boned, lush, romantic way. It didn't matter what the era was, whether we were talking about a Vivaldi concerto or a big symphony of Mahler. Everything was approached in a fairly homogenous way. And Mariner thought this was not authentic, that they could do better. And what this meant was essentially stripping away all of these excesses and liberties that a lot of wonderful conductors had taken with this music. You brought in a little piece for us to hear an old-school Baroque recording, is that right? Yes. What we're going to listen to is the very famous air from the Third Orchestral Suite by Bach. And this is a recording, which I love, that would be frowned upon by many purists today by the great Dutch conductor Willem Mengelberg and his orchestra, the Concertgebouw of Amsterdam. And this is from the late 1930s. I believe it's 1937. Okay, great. Let's put on the turntable. If you listen to the clip that we've just played, what you hear is an incredible yearning. You hear longing. This is music that's full of romantic angst. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But there are a lot of elements that are uh, not, as one would say, correct. For example, you hear the strings vibrating. You hear the strings sliding from note to note, something called portamento. You hear Mengelberg taking liberties with the tempo just within a phrase or within a bar or two. This is called rubato. If you listen to a recording of that same piece that may have been performed more recently, what you would hear is something a lot cleaner, a lot uh, more austere even. It's different. There are people who still today swear by the old ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you can have both. I don't think one has to exclude the other. You can have at all. <laughs> so you're not a total purist. Okay. No. So let's listen to a piece conducted by Mariner. You've picked out the second movement of the first orchestral suite by Bach. Tell us, what should we be listening for? I want you to listen to this and hear how the textures are different, the lightness and the airiness here, the elegance and the charm. It's very different from Mengelberg, but no less beautiful, I think but also much more authentic, if you want. You said earlier that old-school 1950s recordings of everything were basically like lush, romantic, big-boned, no matter whether it was Bach or Mozart. Can we listen to a Mozart clip to let's, hear Let's do it. Let's listen means. to one of my favorite performances, actually. This is from the 40s, uh, and it's the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Wilhelm Furtwängler. Uh, this is of a Mozart symphony, the, the symphony number 39. Let's play a, a short clip just to give you a sense of texture of the big forces of the Berlin Philharmonic in its heyday 
what it once did sound like. So that's from 1944, and you were saying that this was what was all the rage. Baroque was older and inaccessible. So how would Mariner and his cohort of musicians have discovered Baroque music? Was it like LPs lying around all dusty? Would it have been musicology courses, word of mouth? Well, I, I if you're a musician, you're well-versed in, in the repertoire. So In all of it? Yes. Even and if it's not cool? Yes. Okay. And again, what we, when we use that, I mean, popularity is, is one thing when it comes to the public, but a musician has a very Catholic education. Uh, Mariner began as a violinist. He studied at the Royal College of Music in London, Paris Conservatoire. He had a wonderful education. His parents were incredibly encouraging. They were fanatics when it came to classical music. There was music in the household all the time. So when he subsequently became a professional and realized that this huge portion of music was not being performed by symphony orchestras, it struck a chord. He, he, not to, to, to use a bad <laughs> musical fun pun, he wanted to, in some ways, reclaim this territory and uh, to, to popularize it. And, you know, musical audiences have never really looked back. This is still some of the most popular music, largely because of the radio. And I do write in my piece about the impact that radio had uh, on this revival. Uh, if you listen, I, I, I mentioned in the piece that if you had turned on the radio in the 70s, the 1980s, you'd been really hard-pressed not to come across a recording by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields within a very short period of time. And I think I made a mistake in that piece because <laughs> it's not just the 70s and 80s. It's now. It's absolutely now. Yeah. I woke up this morning, uh, my alarm went off, and sure enough, there was the classic 1969 performance of the Vivaldi Four Seasons with Alan Loveday, the violinist, and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, Devil Mariner conducting. That's what I woke up to this morning, and my wife, who read this piece last night, said, you're wrong. This, they are as ubiquitous today as they ever were. I mean, this is an orchestra that made 500-plus recordings. They were recording something on average of 13 discs a year uh, during their heyday. Uh, so they were able to democratize this sound. It was a very clean, crisp conducting style. It was... Absent from the style was all kinds of podium bravado. Uh, he wasn't flailing about, calling attention to himself. It was all about the music. It was all about the orchestra. Let's close out then with this wonderful selection from the Magic Flute. Yes, this is the overture from the Magic Flute uh, with, with Neville Mariner conducting the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. And this is a recording, I believe, from 1982. It's somewhere in the early 1980s. And I think it just, in this minute or so of music, you'll just hear all of the qualities that I think made and may continue to make the Academy uh, so elegant and charming and full of life and vitality.
Now we're going to veer off into the world of science, specifically psycholinguistics. Jessica Love wrote the Psychobabble column for our website for three years, where she talked about everything from babies' remarkable grasp of statistics to what language might look like if it were made entirely of pictures. Her research and her writing has focused on psycholinguistics, which is the study of how we learn language and how our language use changes over time from when we're little babies just learning how to speak to full-grown adults changing how we use slang all the time. She ended her column in 2014 to start working on a book and to welcome a little research participant of her own into the family, which changed the trajectory of that book quite a lot. So thanks for sitting down with me, Jess, and talking about your current work. Sure thing. I'm excited to be chatting with you. In preparation for our conversation, I was reading through some of your old columns. And at one point, there was this wonderful line that I had to copy down where you write, language development is a strange and hugely variable process. And it was in the context of reassuring parents that like, oh, no, if your child doesn't develop like this, it's okay. But that's not the whole story, is it? There are a lot of aspects of child development that are just totally undeveloped, unstudied. So can you talk about how your approach to psycholinguistics and this research has changed recently and what sparked that change? Sure. So I think that a lot of language acquisition and uh, cognitive development in children more broadly can be summed up in what I like to call the wind-up theory of child development. So just picture a wind-up toy and it's, you know, teetering along on a tabletop and you and you wind it up and it's just kind of good to go as long as it's got some bumpers in place and you don't let it teeter off the shelf. Um, and I think that is a pretty good metaphor for how a lot of researchers and scholars in child development think about how the process works. Kids are born with this desire to learn about the world around them and this ability to learn about the world around them and all that parents and caregivers and the other adults in their life really need to do is keep them safe, keep them healthy, keep them fed, um, let them know that they're loved and they have the tools uh, to do the rest. And I think it's a very powerful point of view, and it's for a lot of kids, it's correct. And it's certainly the view that I internalized as a researcher in the field. And I think where that has started breaking down um, was at six months old when my own daughter, my first child, um, went to her six-month well-baby visit, and the pediatrician noticed that she wasn't grabbing objects the way you would expect a kid her age to do. Um, you would hand her something, and it's almost like it just went through her fingers. Like She just didn't have that part of her that said, this is how you grab the object. Um, she didn't necessarily have the strength. She didn't have the motor plan that told her muscles to go and reach for that object. And, you know, the, the pediatrician said, I think you might want to consider early intervention. Um, early intervention is a federal program that's uh, done through the states. And so I contacted uh, early intervention through the state of Illinois, where I live, and found out that my daughter did, in fact, qualify for these services. And it was a huge adjustment period for me because 
it had never really occurred to me that intervention and that actually kind of leading a child literally by the hand through some of these developmental processes um, was was something that I was going to have to deal with personally, or was it something that really was as common as it was? So how did this wind-up theory, as you're calling it, develop among researchers? To give you some sense of where they're coming from, I think there's this real drive among scholars of child development to push back against kind of a materialistic culture that says you need to buy things for your kids to help them become better versions of themselves. So you need to buy your kid a Baby Einstein video so they can learn language faster than the other kids. Or you need to do uh, Mama and Me yoga class so your child develops a sense of their body. And I think where you do get a different perspective is, of course, uh, researchers who work with clinical populations. And they are going to have very, very different responses to questions like, do kids ever need need intervention. So for instance, kids who are learning language and are not learning to speak as quickly as other kids their age. The advice for parents is, you know, really use simple language. Give them phrases that aren't going to intimidate them, phrases that they might feel more inclined to repeat back. Simplify a lot of the language that you use. Even that really goes against this wind-up theory because the wind-up theory would say you shouldn't have to simplify it. Kids are little sponges and they're going to pick up on all these statistical relationships themselves and all you're going to do if you simplify things is is make the process harder. You're making it unnatural. You're teaching them an unnatural way of speaking. So just how common are delays like this? What percentage of the baby population would fall into these different categories? So This really shocked me. According to the CDC, up to 15% of children have delays in one aspect of development. That's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. It's, you know, especially, you know, 10% of our population is left-handed. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot of kids. Um, And of course, that would include things like autism spectrum, ADHD, um, as well as a wide range of these developmental delays. And one of the biggest problems that I see is that most of the studies that we do tend to be pretty small. It's, you know, maybe it's 20 kids, 35 kids, 40 kids, and that's because it's really hard to do this research. Um, It's hard to get a baby to sit still for, you know, four minutes while we show them a video and track their eyes and watch where they gaze. And that means you can't handle a lot of variability. And it's actually the same problem that you see in a lot of neuroscience research. It turns out that people who are left-handed have brains that tend to look a little bit different from people who are right-handed. And so if you can only run 20 people in the scanner, you just get rid of the lefties because they're going to be weird and they're going to make the data difficult to uh, come to some sort of conclusion about. And so because you have these small sample sizes, you have to get rid of a lot of the diversity and you remove these outliers. And I think it loses something. So what it almost sounds like is that there's this in-between population between like normal kids who are just these wind-up sponge toys and 
clinical populations. And there's this nebulous in-between Venn diagram of kids that are not necessarily going to fit properly into either model. I think that's a nice way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, think about stories of you as a child and, and, and your siblings, if you have any as children. I mean, everybody's quirky. Everybody has these areas where they don't fit into, you know, quote unquote, typical development. And I do think you're right, though. There is this this kind of funny group where there is no real diagnosis. And all you can do is say, huh, they really are learning a little bit differently than other kids. Um, now, that could change over time, right? So as kids get older, once there's a label, it feels like, oh, OK, maybe the wind-up toy theory isn't going to work anymore. But until you get to that point, um, I think parents are in a really tough spot. Yeah, it seems like it's difficult to tell sometimes whether it's a stage of development or a symptom of something else. But I'm still not clear on what makes so diagnosing a two-year-old or a three-year-old so difficult. They're just developing so, so quickly. A lot can change in a very short period of time. And the older kids get, the more stable these diagnoses tend to be. But when a kid's only 18 months or two years, nobody really knows. And, and part of that is uh, we don't have great data. But another thing that's really, really interesting is that when kids are really young, a lot of delays can look really similar and they can cascade. So let's say you have a motor delay, and so you're not able to make the types of motor movements that other babies and toddlers your age can make. Well, that's going to affect just about everything. It's going to affect how you interact with the world. It's going to affect the age at which you can sit up. It's going to affect the age at which you can put objects in your mouth. And some studies have suggested a relationship between, you know, a baby putting a block in their mouth and hearing that blockage of air where you go, Allah, 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 and going, huh, that sounds so different, and almost exploring these consonants. Well, where did that come from? It came from your motor skills and your ability to pick up that block and manipulate it. And so what you see is kids who struggle in one area, for a really long time, they can look like kids who struggle in other areas because the delays can kind of feed on each other. So there's just a lot of connections. Um, and it's led some people to theorize, you know, maybe there's a genetic link between these abilities. Certainly, again, there could be these kind of developmental cascades. Uh, I'd say, you know, the jury's still out. So that's a big change from buying the wind-up theory wholesale. Um, when you finished your column for us a couple of years ago, you were going to work on a book about how these little wind-up baby sponges are set up for success, but it's been a couple of years, and I imagine that the book project has changed a lot since then. Yeah, so the book itself um, was going to be about um, the age of enrichment. So right now, we're living in a time um, where at least parents of a certain uh, class are putting a lot of energy towards uh, making our children as smart and cultural and wise and athletic and in tune with their bodies as we possibly can. And, and my 
um, my book was going to explore all of these different areas. The last chapter was going to be about how enrichment is used as intervention for kids who are struggling. And um, I decided that that was where I needed to focus my attention. You know, not kids who are doing great and are going to um, Thailand for a year to, to learn a new language, um, but kids who are missing their milestones by a lot and could really use the intervention. Um, and I, I, I still hope to return to this broader topic. I really am still interested in sign language and exotic travels and music lessons and tumbling classes, but it's just, it's not where I am right now. Um, and the other big thing about the new book is I think it's going to be a lot more personal. Um, part of the reason I got into science journalism was because I don't like writing about myself. I like kind of hiding behind the science. There's so much great science out there, and it gets me outside myself. But I think this book is going to have to be a little bit different, and that's terrifying, and it's awesome. That's all for Smarty Pants this week and this year. We'll be back in 2017 with a whole new roster of compelling people. If you've got any suggestions for who we should talk to, by all means, send me an email, podcast at theamericanscholar.org. I've already gotten some excellent suggestions and would love to hear more of what you want to hear. So have a wonderful holiday season, drink some eggnog, and cross your fingers that next year will be better than this one. Till we see each other next, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 